Okay. So, um, thank you all for coming tonight. And um, actually, the full moon of May is uh, often celebrated as the time of uh, this thrice blessed day, but um, due to the timing and then me getting sick, it's a little bit later after the full moon, but maybe auspicious right after a an eclipse. <laughs> so it's interesting they talk about that in the full moon of May was the time of the Buddha's birth, time of his enlightenment, and the time of where he exhaled his last breath into what's known as Parinibbana, into, um, into Nibbana or to enlightenment. So I'd like, uh, in honor of, uh, of the Buddha, to, to speak about his uh, life. And it actually really is a very historic moment, nearly 2,600 years ago, that um, something happened. And even 2,600 years later, we're talking about it. And it's actually very interesting to say that um, in the history of the world, perhaps there's never been a time in our modern age where there's been this conversion, convergence of science and meditation uh, that's really quite exciting. Never before has uh, we, you know, I think that the wisdom of the ages says that yes, the practice of awareness can um, have effects on our health and well-being. But now this is actually being documented through functional MRIs and other sophisticated technology. Where we're really beginning to see how that these uh, altered traits of mind through repetition of cultivating mindfulness states can actually change the architecture and function within the brain. And this has been documented over and over again. And so when we think about the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, nearly 2,600 years ago, in some ways there is another turning of the wheel, of this fusion of science and meditation that has actually never happened in the history of the world till now. So it leaves me feeling very inspired and very excited of the possibilities of, of mindfulness uh, as a great hope to our world that direly needs it. I think some of you know, and some of you may not, but I, I do a lot of um, traveling all over the world now, teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction and also insight meditation in many different countries. And it's very exciting to actually meet so many people that are very interested, very hungry to want to learn these practices. And um, there is a lot of hope and potential. So in honor of uh, the Buddha's awakening, uh, this talk is dedicated to that and to the awakening of all beings. Some people call Buddhism a religion, but I think many would refer to it more as a way of life. And the Buddha was born in northern India, in Labini, around the year 623 BC. And he lived for about 80 years. And he died in the Sala Grove in Kusanara. I'd like to speak a little bit about uh, the Buddha and his journey. And I really like this story so much because I can very much relate to it as a regular human being, like you and I. It so happened that uh, before he became known as the Buddha, his name was Siddhartha Gautama. And he was born into a royal family. He was a prince, his father was a king. And shortly after his birth, his father called in five astrologers to uh, look at this young infant and to look at his hands and legs and just get a sense and a read of him and hopefully the king would hear some good news about his destiny. 
And four of them said that he would become a great king like his father, and that made his father very happy. The youngest one, his name was Kodanya, he was the youngest, but he was also the wisest, said, no, he'll become a Buddha, one that is awakened, and cause a very profound spiritual revolution of consciousness, of heart. Well, the king did not like to hear that at all. He didn't want his son to become some Buddha. He wanted him to become a great king like himself. And so the king made every effort while Siddhartha was growing up to shield him from any of the sufferings and pains of life. He got all the latest gadgets of his day, an iPhone, had a Facebook account, <laughs> had an iPad and all those types of things. He had everything that uh, anyone would want materially and he was, had a great education and trained in various skills and arts and sports. Met a wonderful woman named Yasodara and married her. So life was pretty darn good. Didn't really experience hardly any types of sorrows, confusion, despair. The father shielded him from seeing anything that would upset him. Palaces for the summer, palaces for the winter, palaces for the fall, the spring. Kept any signs of uh, pain or suffering away from him. And so he lived like this for 29 years. And in his 29th year, for whatever reason we don't quite know, he decided to go out of his uh, castle kingdom into the town, into the village, into the cities with his friend and charioteersman, kind of like a taxi cab driver named Chana. And uh, just went out to see what was happening. And through a series of events, sometimes they're called the four heavenly messengers, he saw four different signs that awoke him to this world in other ways that he had never been exposed to before. First exposure was that he came across someone that was very, very old and decrepit. And in Siddhartha's shielded life, he had never seen someone so old and asked Chana, who is this? And Chana said, this is a person, if you live long enough, you will age and you will get old. No one can escape from aging. And Siddhartha was very shocked upon seeing this sign. It very much upset him. This will happen to me. This will happen to others. Very soon after that, he went out again with Chana and saw another sign of a person lying on the ground with vomit and feces. It's just so sick. Really, really sick. Siddhartha was blessed with very good health and he had never been sick like this and he had never seen anyone being sick like this and it really frightened him and disturbed him and asked Chana, what's going on here? The person said, this is a person that is sick. If you live, you will get sick. You cannot escape from illness, Chana said. This really shocked Siddhartha. There's aging, there's illness. He went out again a third time and another messenger that they're sometimes known or referred to where he came across a corpse, a dead body, lifeless. Siddhartha said, what is this? This person's not moving, not breathing. Touch the person cold. China said, this is a person who has died. No one can escape from death. When the Siddhartha heard this, he was very profoundly upset. Aging, illness, and death that none of us can escape from. What is this life? 
What is this life? And I, I love that this story is about this, because this is this life, illness, aging, death. Well, one other time Siddhartha went out with Chana, and this time he happened to see somebody walking by with a shaved head and kind of rag robes. But this person had such a feeling of peace and calmness to them. Siddhartha had never seen a person ever in his life like this before. And he asked Chana, who's this? Because this is a person that dedicates their life to understanding what is the meaning of life. And when Siddhartha heard that, he decided, this is what I must do. I too must do this. He had, in, what, uh, in the language of Pali, the language of the Buddha, is a particular word that really speaks to uh, what came up for Siddhartha. And that word is called samvega. And samvega means that when you realize, without a doubt that you cannot escape from illness, aging, and death. It catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency to understand what is the meaning of this life. It's a pretty powerful paragraph for one word, samwega. And he had samwega big time. <laughs> and you can imagine, like, uh, he must be shocked at 29 years. Sometimes I think about, oh, this story, this is just some type of fable. Surely... By 29 years, you would realize about death and aging and illness and so forth. But then again, if I look at my life and the denial that I, you know, there's an old Hindu proverb, everyone thinks everyone else is going to die but not me. So perhaps there's just this profound denial, but for whatever reason, at the age of 29, that denial left and he woke up and saw what this is here. Kind of like Neo in the Matrix taking that pill and waking up and finding out he's been plugged in his whole life into some virtual reality for those of you who have seen Matrix. Pretty cool. So Siddhartha decided, going back to the palace after seeing that wandering monk, that this is what I want to do, and gave his, all his clothes away, prepared to leave the kingdom. This was even on the night of... Um, his wife is pregnant with their first child and she was going into labor. And his father came and heard that he was leaving and begged him, please don't go, please don't go, Siddhartha. And Siddhartha said, I won't go if you can promise me three things. So there was some hope because the king was very wealthy, like a Bill Gates. He can do anything. So, okay, I can grant you these three wishes. Tell me what they are. And Siddhartha said, please um, prevent me from getting old, getting sick and die. The king just just kind of went into despair, couldn't grant him that wish, but begged him again, please, please, ask me other things. Because, okay, two wishes. Prevent me from getting sick and prevent me dying. The king despaired. But then even a third time, the king begged him, please, please, and then Siddhartha said, how about just one wish? And then there was a glimmer of hope. Surely the king could provide one wish, fulfill one wish. And Siddhartha said, prevent me from dying. And so with that being said, the king um, knew he was defeated. And Siddhartha left that palace that night, shaved his head, put on rag robes, and went out into the forest. And some of us might think, what type of guy is this? Because his wife was in labor, and he's leaving town. We have to also understand at the time that Siddhartha knew quite well that his wife would be cared for very well. This is a, you know, the father was a king, and there's lots of people around. And I'll come back, this is another part of the story with a happy ending. But I just want to just name that, yeah, he left. It's kind of amazing. He left. And he left to go and study with many of the major known meditation teachers of the time that were practicing very deep, intensive concentration practices. And he'd go from one teacher to the next. He was a great student, and he learned everything that they had learned and mastered deep states of concentration and absorption 
to leave, it came to a time where the teacher would say, well, you know as much as I do, and you can stay with me now and teach, teach others. But Siddhartha was not satisfied because he still didn't get what is this life. To calm his mind very deeply, get very deep altered states of consciousness, but did not understand the roots. So eventually uh, he left all these different teachers and he began practicing with these five ascetics that were really into self-mortification, punishment of the body. It was believed the harder you punished your body, the more perhaps you could become purified to attain enlightenment. Well, Siddhartha excelled once again with self-mortification or any practice that he worked upon. And he practiced so severely that he came to close to the brink of exhaustion and possibly death. It is said that he reduced his food intake down to one grain of rice a day. And that when he touched his belly, he could feel his tailbone. And again, at that brink of, of collapse, Siddhartha realized the futility of self-mortification, punishing the body. And realized that there had to be more of a middle way. He left those five ascetics and they thought he went off the deep end. And he uh, received some food from Sujata, beautiful maiden, offered him some food and began to restore his health and his well-being, began to become healthy again. And there Siddhartha decided, you know, I've studied with so many different teachers, I've been with these ascetics, and I still haven't found the way, and I'm just going to have to figure it out for myself. And saw this big, beautiful tree that became known later as the Bodhi tree, the tree of awakening, and decided to take his seat underneath this tree, and decided to, with a resolution he was just going to stay there till he woke up, till he understood what was his life. There wasn't any need to go anywhere else. And so as he sat underneath this tree, began to collect his mind, he recalled a memory of when he was a child, young boy, and he recalled sitting underneath another tree. And it was one of those beautiful, beautiful days. We get these here in Santa Cruz, these beautiful sunny days. The temperature was just right, the breeze was just right, the feeling was just right, and he was just sitting out on this, by this tree, and he was just looking out into the field, into the pastures, and he just felt at one with the universe. How wonderful and incredible this life is. And then that lasted for a few moments, this moment of ease and grace, and then he happened to look over on this field and some farmers were with their oxen and plows and they were beginning to use the plows and breaking into the soil to turn over the soil for the springtime to get ready to plant. And because of his sensitivity was so heightened, when the plows went into the earth, he had this sense of almost hearing the cries of agony of the worms being cut open. And it was one of these moments where he had just priorly experienced the exquisiteness of this life and then for a moment experienced the profound painfulness of life. So evidently even as a young boy he had these moments of pain. But it wasn't really awake until much later in his 29th year. But he recalled that memory of the beautiful day and then the worms being cut open and the sadness and the grief and the despair that arose within him. And then by himself, underneath that tree as a young boy, he remembered about, he just began to calm himself down by becoming mindful of his breath in and his breath out. And as he recalled that memory, he began underneath the Bodhi tree to become mindful of his breath in and his breath out. And he continued his vigil, sitting underneath the tree, being mindful of the breath in and out. And gradually, as he began to really calm and collect his mind, 
factors of awakening arose within him, the seven factors of awakening. He became more mindful, of course, and that gave rise to investigation. What is this? Energy, effort, became more balanced. He wasn't too tight. He wasn't too loose. It's just the right balancing of energy. That brought him a sense of refreshment and joy, rapture. From this rapture and joy, he became more calm and tranquil. (coughs) His mind became much more still and one-pointed. And it was cultivated and balanced through this factor, this last factor of equanimity and balance, unperturbedness of mind. As these seven factors of awakening were arising and occurring within him, and he was getting more calm and balanced, there is a celestial being, but we could also consider this to be a psychological part of ourselves, called Mara. Mara means the tempter. Well, Mara saw that uh, Siddhartha was getting very calm and still. And Mara got a little bit uh, concerned about this because Mara's job was not to have anyone wake up. And so he began to tempt the Buddha, began to try to set out armies of fear towards the Buddha, as if like arrows being plucked and going towards the Buddha. And so Siddhartha, when he saw all the fear arising in his awareness, Mara charging these armies of fear, the Buddha, having such unperturbedness of mind and awareness of mind, just said to Mara, just these three words, I see you, Mara. I see you fear. And in that moment of the seeing and the naming, those arrows metaphorically all turned into lotus blossoms. Fear could not touch Siddhartha because Siddhartha saw clearly this was fear with this unperturbedness of mind. Then Mara got more angry and said, well, I'm going to seduce you and got out all these armies of seduction. And Siddhartha said, I see you, Mara, remaining very unperturbed and balanced. Each time Mara sent upon his armies trying to distract Siddhartha that was beginning to awaken, the Buddha responded back, I see you, Mara. And finally, Mara said, well, Siddhartha, so you're going to get wakened up, but you know who's who's going to know? Who's going to be your witness? No, no one will. I, I'm not going to witness this. No one will witness you. And then it supposedly there was a, an earthquake, and out of the earth came this celestial being, and said, it "Was the angel of the earth?" And the angel said, "I witness his awakening." It's actually very interesting. Behind me, you'll see the statue of the Buddha, and there's a picture of his, uh, I believe it's his right hand, going down. And that's a mudra, a symbol of him pointing to the earth. And the earth as his witness of his awakening. There's a very beautiful... um, Description of his awakening that's written in the text. So I'd like to just read it to you. It's called The Lion's Roar. When the Buddha awakened into understanding this life, its suffering, its causes, its path to lessening the causes. So he says, Through many a birth I wandered in samsara. That's the world of birth, old age, disease, and death, samsara. Seeking but not finding the builder of the house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again. O house builder, thou art seen, and thou shalt build no house again. All the rafters are broken. Thy rich 
whole is shattered. My mind has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving and ignorance. The lion's roar of the Buddha. And so, after staying underneath the Bodhi tree for three months, now no longer Siddhartha, but the Buddha, which literally means the awakened one, he awakened into these four noble truths, suffering, its causes, its ending, and the pathway to its ending. And after three months, the Buddha decided to uh, go see the five ascetics that he had been practicing with and share with them what he had learned. So this was on the full moon of July at the Deer Park in Isipatana near Barnares at sunset. And there Siddhartha Gautama was walking towards these five ascetics and at first they looked at him and goes, oh, there's that guy that went off the path and ate food again. <laughs> but they began, like the Siddhartha just kept, the Buddha kept on walking towards them and without them even talking with one another, they, some just started to gather water, some created a little fire, some swept the path. There was something different about this guy. And so it was there in the Deer Park in Isipatana on this full moon of July that uh, the Buddha taught these five ascetics uh, the Four Noble Truths. And it's actually interesting to say that uh, one of the five ascetics, after hearing the teachings, attained enlightenment, freedom. And that ascetic, his name was Kodanya, who was actually the wise astrologer from many years ago that sitting over them, the Buddha. His name was Kodanya. Actually, the Buddha called him Anatta Kodanya, the one who knows no self. So first, the Buddha spoke about these four noble truths and that the pathway to freedom is through the middle path, not through overindulgence and not through self-mortification, and he had experienced them all. So the first noble truth, and there's a lot that I want to say here tonight, so I'm going to not go that long with each one, but try to get to the gist of it. The first noble truth is the noble truth that there is indeed suffering or dissatisfactoriness or stress, or in Pali it's called dukkha. Sometimes it's a description that it comes from the root word thaduk. And the duke means that you have a wheel. And the wheel is usually round, right? But there's one part of the wheel that's kind of flat, so it goes, the duke, the duke, the duke. It's not quite just right. So the noble truth of suffering is that the Buddha acknowledged that there is indeed suffering in this world. It's kind of like naming the white elephant that had been in the living room all along. I don't know why we pick on the poor white elephant, but just acknowledging that there is indeed suffering. There is indeed suffering. Birth, old age, disease, death, separation, getting things that you don't like, uncertainty, unpleasant experiences, difficulties. There is in this world, suffering. So it's kind of normalizing and naming that there is suffering. <laughs> and often sometimes the Dharma, the Buddhism, oh, this is all about, they're, all, they're only just into suffering, but this is only one of the Four Noble Truths. The other three is leading to the ending of suffering. So there's good news. And so the first noble truth is that there is indeed suffering, and the second noble truth is that there is a cause. There is a cause. 
This is the second noble truth. This is really important. There's a cause of suffering. And actually, it's a very beautiful um, translation of the noble truth of suffering by um, a monk named um, Amaro. He's an Englishman. Ajahn Amaro. He's uh, an elder now in the Dharma. I've been a monk for many years. And this is what he writes. He goes, This monks is the noble truth of the cause of suffering, and it is craving. Craving that is compelling and intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again. Ever seeking delight now, here, now, there. That powerful craving that is compelling and intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight here and delight there. Namely, it is the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. So he identifies these three aspects that cause us to be born into things again and again. The craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, the craving to feel nothing. So the craving for sensual delight, as we compare it to Western psychology, could be like the eros instinct. Wanting to feel good. And, you know, there's no problem with feeling good. But I think one of the deep sources of this suffering, of this craving to feel good, is if we feel inside ourselves that we're empty, that there's something less inside us, then we're constantly looking outside to be fulfilled. And it's a real suffering when we keep on looking outside of ourselves to be made whole again. That's why even at night, I could be lying next to my wife in bed and still it's not enough. That happiness comes from within us, but when we are looking outside of us, I often tell this story that uh, one time I was eating some tofuti vanilla ice cream. I love tofuti ice cream. I'm a vegan. And I was eating and I was satiating and it was just wonderful. I was in heaven. Until I saw there was only one or two spoonfuls left. And then I went into hell. Because what am I going to do? It's going to be over. I'll get another another bucket of it. (laughs) Thought of it for a second, but I don't think so. So while I'm in that place of satiation, it's all wonderful, but when something outside of me is gone, I'm back to me, myself, and I. The sense of the craving. And the, the craving, it's, it, and I want to just separate between craving and desire. You know, craving is, is it's this thing, it's intoxicating. Like my wife, for example, likes it when I desire her, but she doesn't like it when I'm clinging and holding on to her ankle, like, please don't leave. Like a French poodle, you know, rabbing on the ankle. But there's this craving that at times that we're looking outside of ourselves to become whole, to become happy. And it gives us a lot of suffering as we go into this birth again and again into things, trying to fill this gap. The second aspect, maybe in Western psychology, could be compared um, to like the ego, the craving to be something, to be someone. I'm Bob. I'm a meditation teacher. I'm this. I'm that. A lot of suffering. This I. Emily Dickinson says, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They'd banish us, you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public, like a frog, to tell your name the live long day to an admiring bog. (laughs) This wanting to be 
seen, to be known, to be liked, to be loved. This wanting to be someone can cause a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. This too is what the Buddha was identifying, this craving to be something, to be someone. And it's important in certain ways that we fulfill some of our needs and hopes for ourselves, but there's also another aspect of this where, the, where it's like a thirst that cannot be quenched. And the more that we leave ourselves in recognition somehow to verify our own sense of worthiness, our own sense of justification of who it is that we are, if we're looking outside of ourselves for that, it, it will not, it's a type of a suffering. It's a type of big suffering, this leaving of ourselves. The third type of craving is compared in Western psychology, I would say, to the thanatos, or the death instinct the craving to feel nothing. There are times, and I, I can just relate to this, I, I can really relate to sense. like, I just don't want to be here. Just don't want to feel it. Just don't want this to happen. This craving to feel nothing, to push it away. So the Buddha identified that these three types of cravings are the causes of suffering. And actually, there's one cause that's underneath these three that is the foundational aspect of all suffering. And that is unawareness, ignorance, not knowing. Because of this not knowing, it creates a powerful wheel of becoming that goes around and around and around. The technical word in the Dharma is called dependent origination because this happened, that happens, because that happens, this happens. But it's this chain of, of conditions that support suffering and it's continuing to go around. When we begin to break that cycle is through our awareness. Oh, I see you, Mara. I see you craving. I see you here. And we can begin to disrupt that cycle of suffering. We can begin to stop it. We can begin to lessen it. My old teacher, Tang Pulisero, used to say, if you know, it will break. If you don't know, you will go round and around. This is dependent origination. If you know, it will break. If you know, and you see how the suffering comes around and you don't feed it, it will break. If you don't know, you will go round and around. third noble truth is that the way to end suffering is to begin to lessen and gradually eradicate this ignorance and this craving that I've been speaking about, which is not very easy. But it is possible possible through the practices of awareness and compassion. And actually what makes it possible, this ending and lessening of suffering, is the fourth noble truth known as the Eightfold Noble Path. The Eightfold Noble Path offers us a prescription for living our lives to the lessening of suffering and pain. There's three aspects to these eight spokes, if you will. The practices of living virtuously. Not creating harm to ourselves, to others, to be wise with our speech and with our livelihood. Developing this foundation of ethical living, of virtue, of kindness, sets upon the foundation for other aspects to begin to grow. As we begin to become uh, more virtuous in our ways of living, naturally our mind becomes more settled. We begin to develop even balanced effort and concentration, mindfulness. 
So this foundation of virtue helps to settle the mind, helps to build our concentration, and within this concentration it builds into great qualities of wisdom, of wise intention to create no harm to ourselves, to others. Wise understanding, the understanding of suffering, its causes, its pathway to its end. spoke about the Buddha's birth. I spoke about his enlightenment, Nisipatana. The last aspect is wanting to speak about his death. This is found in what's called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Within this sutta, it tells of the story of the Buddha's passing. It's a long story. But being that it's been a long night, I'm going to shorten it quite a bit. But the Buddha was aware that his time was getting up. He was 80 years old. His body was much more frail. He knew that uh, there wasn't much time left. And during this uh, time of uh, him knowing that he was going to be passing, he prepared the community with helping to support the community of monks and householders and nuns uh, in ways to help continue to keep these teachings alive, to prosper, to grow, to gladden the many. And um, it came a time when um, the Buddha <coughs> was offered his last meal by this villager named Kunda. It turned out that the food that he had offered was, um, was not good. And the Buddha became deathly ill and died of food poisoning. The story goes, though, that um, as the Buddha took this food, because um, he knew that it was, it's actually very special to be offered food from a householder with a pure heart, and that even though um, as he ate the food and recognized that this food was going to be his beginning of his end, he expressed to Kunda, who offered him the food, to not have any remorse, that it is very significant and special to be offering the Buddha his last meal and to not feel remorse. That actually this was a very meritorious Action, this pureness of heart and wanting to offer food. And of course, Kunda didn't know that this was food was uh, not good. And so the story goes that um, he became deathly ill and Buddha, being born in the forest, wanted to die in the forest and came to Kusinara and they prepared a bed for him between two solitaries with his head to the north. And it said that the Buddha lied down on his right side in what's known as the lion's posture. And he just practiced mindfully and comprehending his body as it's heading towards death. And it said that at the time that the twin solitaries broke out in full bloom, though it was not the time of the season of flowering. So again, some kind of magical things happening. And the blossoms rained upon his body, 
and scattered all around him. Other amazing things happened. Sandalwood powder came raining down from the sky. And then the Buddha spoke in some of his last words in saying that um, that the teacher is the teaching. Let that be your guide. And also exclaim that whoever is an elder in the Dharma, whoever is a monastic that's more elder than another, that, that one should pay respects to their elders. Let the elders guide the way. He also expressed to the community that when he's gone, that if it was skillful to abolish some of the lesser or minor rules, they could. And then, shortly before his passing, the Buddha uttered his last words. He said to his community that I exhort you that all compounded things are subject to vanish, to be impermanent, and to strive with earnestness, with diligence to awaken. And it said after that that the Buddha went into these meditative absorptions and then eventually um, left his body. He died and entered into what is called Parinibbana. This is Nibbana without the body. Some people ask, well, what is this? And goes, well, this is a place you could say that is the end of suffering, no longer on the wheel of birth, old age, disease, and death, peace. And so even now, So many years later, 2,600 years almost later, we are still speaking about this journey of the Buddha and his awakening. And one of the things that's very powerful is is that this awakening is not reserved to the Buddha. It's for any one of us. When we take refuge into the Buddha, it's taking refuge in the possibility of Every one of us can awaken. Yes, we can also say that historically is taking refuge in the Buddha and the Buddha's awakening, but it's also the refuge in awakening in of itself. That this is a potential seed that everyone has. There's no one um, that that can't have that possibility. And this was actually a very amazing thing in in India at that time, which was so deeply rooted in the caste system and what was understood at the time was that you were determined with your nobility and purification by what birth family you were born into, the Brahmins. And the Buddha said, purification only happens in the heart and in the mind, not by your birth. This was a great revolution. So we take away a refuge in awakening, taking refuge in in the Dharma, which is the way things are taking refuge in the Sangha. The refuge in the Sangha is the noble community, those that are practicing to awaken, which we are all a part of this community. So thank you very much for um, hearing this, and why don't we just sit for a few minutes, and we'll end. And so I invite you in the silence, if it feels appropriate to you, you're welcome to take your own refuge in awakening. It's like the Buddha took the refuge in his own awakening.
taking refuge in the Dharma. The Dharma is the way things are. The truth, the teachings. Lastly, taking refuge in the Sangha, the noble community, those that are dedicated to awakening, those that have practiced before us, we are part of that lineage. Refuge in the community. Established in these refuges, taking refuge in the great safeties of living virtuously, not harming, killing living beings, not stealing, not committing sexual harm, not committing with our speech harm to another, speech that is Useful, timely, kind, beneficial, honest. And lastly, abstaining from taking intoxicants that delude the mind and heart, that obscure our clarity of clear seeing. with this foundation of living virtuously and refuges and awakening, all is possible. May all beings be at peace. for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.